Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. And when the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. This is a very powerful and important moment in the life of Jesus. Where in the Gospels, multiple times now at this juncture, Jesus has spoken about his impending death to very shortly come. And now this is the moment where Jesus resolutely sets his face and his eyes upon Jerusalem. And that word determined or resolutely in the text is a word which means to confirm something. In other words, as Jesus looks ahead off into the distance towards Jerusalem, what's going through his mind is, it's time. I'm going. I'm doing it. This is happening. And so we see Jesus marching towards the hellish agonies of the cross. He's going to suffer for the sins and the crimes of humanity. And yet as we're witness to in the Gospels, though, the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, I mean, there's still so much that his disciples need to learn. Jesus has his mind on the cross. And yet on the way to Jerusalem, there's all these fires that he's having to put out by his disciples. As we continue, this is what we see starting in verse 52, where it says Jesus sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans in order to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive Jesus. Because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. And then in verse 54 especially is where it happens. Where we're told that when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from out of heaven and to consume them? And yet Jesus turned And he rebuked them. So this is a very major problem that we see in the text. It's not merely that James and John have just spent three years as the disciples of Jesus, but James and John have spent the last three years in the inner circle of Jesus Christ. I mean, these were among his most vocal followers. As, the, as his disciples in his inner circle, these were supposed to be the guys who were the most greatest examples of the walking extensions of Jesus. Their lives upon the earth were to be a spiritual advertisement that this is what Jesus Christ is like. They were supposed to be messengers of good news of great joy. And yet as we see here, 
James and John have unresolved problems of their heart. They've got a lot of growing up to do. And that's a good thing for us this morning because what this means is that James and John have an awful lot in common with us. We're beginning a new series this morning that is entitled Transformation Hurts. Now don't get me wrong, when it actually begins to lay hold of us and to actually be a part of us, transformation is the greatest feeling in this world. And yet transformation is something, as we all can attest to, that doesn't exactly come very comfortably or with great ease. Transformation in Christ's likeness is not something that is instantaneously downloaded into our brains. When we pray, change my heart, O God, this is not a trip to Disney World. This is triple bypass heart surgery. This is an emergency appendectomy. This is spiritual chemotherapy. And yet, as such a surgery or a regimen of medical procedures are, are needed in order to save a person's life if they want to continue living, so James and John and you and me must excruciatingly and slowly and awkwardly grow up in Jesus Christ. And as for James and John this morning, this is a lesson that can really only be gained in Samaria. You see, James and John are inflicted with, with a syndrome, with, with an infirmity, with a cancer called us and them. You see, Samaria was the last place on earth James and John would have wanted to have gone to. As we probably know, the animosity between Jews and Samaritans was a mutual hatred spanning many centuries. I mean, this was a hatred fueled by racial um, um, differences. As we know, Jews looked to themselves as the real full-blooded Hebrews. And they looked down upon Samaritans as the half-breeds who weren't exactly Hebrew. And yet this was also a hatred fueled by religious differences. Where Hebrews believed that the only acceptable place God could be worshipped was inside a building in Jerusalem. While Samaritans, they had believed that God could only be worshipped on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And really what the final straw was for the Israelites was when when they actually built a rival temple in Samaria, and they announced that this is the house of the Lord, not the other one. And so for all of these reasons and so many others, John records in his gospel that Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. And yet now, as Jesus and his disciples enter into this Samaritan village out of Galilee, I mean, this was a road that Jews ordinarily, almost always, would bypass. Where they would intentionally and deliberately go several miles out of the way. And crossing the Jordan River twice, as long as it meant avoiding them. 
as long as it meant avoiding those other people who we don't like very much. And then as we all see in our text this morning, though, night is now drawing near. Jesus and the twelve need somewhere to stay for the night. And yet Jesus, with his eyes resolutely set upon Jerusalem, notice that he is intentionally having his disciples enter through the Samaritan route. Now, it's not in our text, but I can, I can promise you that all 12 of these guys are just looking at each other like, what is going on? Why is Jesus bringing us this way? This is like pulling teeth for these guys. And as we see in our text, I mean, Samaria isn't so hospitable, are they? Where as soon as they learn that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem at Passover time, as soon as they all see that Jesus is not exactly on board with their us versus them agenda, let's just say that once again, there is no room for Jesus in the end. And yet only this time it is on purpose. Where what the response more or less appears to have been is, yeah, we've got all the room and food in the world, but not for you guys. So you can just let your rabbi know that you, as well as him, you're not welcome here. We don't want your kind in our village, so just keep going and get out of our city as fast as you can. I mean, were they insulting to the apostles? Were they spitting on them? I mean, we don't know what they did or what they said, but we do know that James and John are absolutely fuming. I mean, James and John are ready to put their fists through a wall. Well, as Jesus originally called them as his disciples earlier on, there was a nickname that he gives to James and John, both of them. That nickname, Mark chapter 3 and verse 17, is Boanerges. What Boanerges means is sons of thunder. Jesus looks at them and says, you guys are a couple of SOTs, sons of thunder. You see, what this means is that James and John were, were very passionate about their beliefs. They were dynamic leaders with this ferocious religious intensity. And yet as we see though, as sacred and as holy as our zeal can be sometimes, we also have to be very careful because after all, religious passion can so easily spiral out of control. And you know, James and John remind me so much of a king, ironically, who was king over Samaria, whose name had been Jehu. Jehu is known in Old Testament scripture as a man for wild chariot driving. He was a guy who is referred to as a madman. And we hear it in his words as he says in the pages of scripture, come and see my zeal for the Lord. And there was a lot of good that Jehu did with that zeal, but Equally, there was also a lot of evil that he did with that zeal. Jehu is, is a very bloodthirsty king. And like Jehu, James and John have all of the religious intensity in the world. And yet now, not unlike Jehu, 
we see James and John's passion as it begins now to actually take them to some very dangerous and dark and hellish places. Jesus, their rabbi and friend, has just been insulted. And they're outraged by this. And now James and John have come up with a solution. Where they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and to consume them. And when they say fire in the Hebrew world, what, what this means is the heat of the sun. It means the lightning out of the skies, but, but it especially means the eternal fires of hell. This is the exact same word that John the baptizer uses in the wilderness as he speaks about God burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. And James and John are so enraged that they are personally volunteering to sit down in the judgment seat of God and to exact his fiery judgment on his behalf. We got to understand that they're not asking for anything small here. They want the nuclear football. I mean, they want this to be Sodom and Gomorrah part two. They're wanting a nuclear holocaust to come raining down upon them. James and John want every single man, woman, and child in Samaria to be incinerated. They want the fires of hell to come sweeping over them and to burn them to death now and to burn them for all of eternity in the abyss. And yet we look at them and then once again we, we have to look at Jesus. And what a difference between Jesus and James and John here. Because as Jesus approaches his cross, James and John are not thinking like sons of God. They're thinking like sons of thunder. They're acting like SOTs, sons of thunder. Jesus has his eyes resolutely set on the cross. James and John have their eyes resolutely set on the destruction of their enemies. And they're not being the salt of the earth or the light of the world, but rather they're being religious pyromaniacs. And as we look at the world in which we inhabit, it's, it's absolutely alarming and we have to be so careful about this. Just how often violence and hatred and, and ignorance and bigotry are camouflaged in the guise of Jesus and Christianity. This is exactly what happened in the late 10th century with the Crusades. Where a bunch of Christians got together and convinced themselves, you know what, God wants us to go out and to kill all of the Muslims in this city. For hundreds of years, we see all of this unnecessary bloodshed happening. And yet that did not come from God or from Jesus or from the Holy Spirit. It's what happens at a church in Kansas that is not even really described as a church, but is described as a hate group. It's, it's a group of people who are notorious for, for their fiery hatred of, of Catholics and Jews and, and homosexuals. And the name of their church website is literally www.godhates.com. 
and then a gay slur.com. I mean, that's another name for their church, where they all got together in a room and said that the name for our web address should be www.godhatesblank.com. And yet that did not come from God or from Jesus or from the Holy Spirit. A few years ago, as Hurricane Willa made landfall in Mexico, and 160 mile an hour winds blasted down upon Mexico, there was a congresswoman who had shared a picture of the storm over Mexico with the caption, quote, This is too good. And in the comment section, there was a woman who wrote, and a tropical storm is going to get them after that, followed by a heart emoji. Another woman wrote in the comment section and said, Who says God doesn't answer prayers? And then she said, Thank you, God. Another woman wrote and commented in all caps and said, Take them out, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody pray for this. And then a man commented and said, squash them like bugs, God. And then a racist diatribe against Hispanics that I'm not going to go any further with. I mean, can we see that James and John are not alone in this? I mean, people still actually believe that, that God only cares about them, their ethnicity, and their nationality. And that God hates all of these other people who they hate. I mean, yeah, James and John have a lot of growing up to do. But so does evangelical American Christianity. I mean, just look at how loyal people are to the leaders who most loudly and viciously stoke the flames of us versus them. And yet it just makes me wonder and it makes me lament about all of the beautiful people who would have believed, who would have heard about Jesus and been baptized and gone on their way rejoicing, who instead were scorched and burned and blasted, and who were pushed away from wanting to have anything ever to do with Jesus again. And all because rather than a son or a daughter of Christ and a son or a daughter of light, they met up with a son and a daughter of thunder. They encountered a religious pyromaniac. And the only way that we can ever let go of all of this toxic venom of hate within us, the only way that James and John ever could have lost all of their toxic venom towards their other who were Samaritans, is that we have to address what all of this rage is really all about. And that's because that, really the closer that we look at James and John in this chapter, really the more that we see that they, they are dealing with selective outrage. I mean, this is not the first time that they have seen Jesus rejected. As the scribes and elders and Pharisees had persecuted Jesus every single day of his ministry, I mean, not a word from the apostles. 
As an entire city ordered Jesus to leave their region and never come back, crickets. And yet now, all of a sudden, when it's Samaritans who are rejecting Jesus, well, I mean, suddenly James and John are outraged and outspoken. And the more layers that we peel back in their rage in this episode, really the clearer it becomes that this was never really about exactly defending Jesus. But really what this is all about is they've got a score to settle. They want revenge for their ancestors. And yet they're also coping with, with selective faith. I mean, how many times has Jesus spoken to the smallness and to the lack of their faith? And yet now notice in the text that when it suddenly meant really destroying their enemies, well, now they've got all of the faith and the confidence and the power of God in the world. I mean, they've got faith so as to move mountains. They've got faith to tap dance on the sea and to turn it into wine. And how utterly foreign and different their intercessions are to Abraham's. Or even as Sodom faced to, you know, all of their destruction on the brink of it all. Abraham's intercession was, Lord, if there are even 45 people in this city who love you, God, if I can be so bold as to say that even if there are 20 people, 15 people, 10 people in this city who love you and, and, and who believe in you, please spare this city. And yet here in Samaria, the intercession of James and John is, God, let us burn their eyes out. And yet, worst of all, though, notice that they're using the Bible to justify their rage. I mean, have you ever met anybody whose favorite scriptures were the angry and, and the most violent of the Old Testament? And really, the most captivating thing about our text this morning is that it comes just after Jesus' transfiguration. Simon Peter is there with, with James and John. James and John... We're actually standing there as Jesus' face is transfigured. And as he's standing there speaking with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and they heard with their own ears the voice thundering out of the heavens, speaking about Jesus as opposed to Moses and Elijah, this is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to Jesus. And yet they don't want to be like Jesus, do they? They want to be Elijah. They think that it's 2 Kings chapter 1 all over again. We're in this same region. And on the same Samaritan soil, Elijah engulfs over a hundred Samaritan soldiers with the fire of heaven from God. And when the word fire appears in that Hebrew text, it's a word... You know, a very powerful word, which, which means fire so ferocious that they were instantaneously cremated. I mean, James and John think that this is Mount Carmel all over again, where, where Elijah once again calls down fire out of heaven. And all of these other people are engulfed in flames. 
I mean, they're, really, James and John don't even know it, but their violent retributive response is so much worse a rejection of Jesus than anything these Samaritans have said or done. I mean, Samaritans had very, very little access and limited access to Jesus. I mean, sure, they have rejected Jesus from having a place to stay for the night. They're not going to tuck, you know, they are not going to tuck him in with a bedtime story. And yet James and John have had all of this proximity and access to Jesus, and, and this is how they are acting. They're so mesmerized by Elijah that they've actually already forgotten God's thundering voice. Listen to Jesus. And if they would have listened closely enough, I, I halfway believe that they would have heard that same voice thundering. Seriously, guys. Seriously. Listen to him. And when you and I feel our rage smoldering towards all of our thems and towards our others. It's very crucial that we ask ourselves what, what all of this rage is really all about. I mean, is this really about honoring God? Or is this just a whole bunch of hatred and ignorance and prejudice that is still going unchecked in my heart? Is this really about honoring Jesus Christ? Or am I just trying to appease the ghost of my racist great-grandfather? Is this really about honoring God? Or am I just angry that the guy I voted for didn't win some stupid election? Well, regardless of what it looks like for us to, to have others in our life, if we listen to Jesus, the good news is, is that we will see the transformation. Now, in later manuscripts in Luke chapter 9, it, as, really as it says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. In some manuscripts, it also says, Jesus replies to them, that you do not know what kind of spirit that you are of. And then Jesus says, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As Jesus says in John 3, 17, I have not come into the world in order to condemn it, but to love it. Well, Jesus' face is resolutely set towards Jerusalem. And yet his heart is resolutely set towards all of these people in Samaria. And his heart is resolutely set towards us. And so all of the people who we dehumanize as our thems. And yet the good news is, is that eventually James and John, they listened to the one who said, love your enemies and pray for them who, who are going to persecute you. They listened to the Jewish rabbi who drank water with a Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar, who cleansed a Samaritan leper and who made the hero of one of his greatest parables, the Good Samaritan. And at the very end of their lives, as we see James and John, it is such a beautiful thing, because we see two very, very different people. 
We're in the book of Acts. James becomes the very first of, of those 12 disciples to depart as a martyr. Where they took a sword and they decapitated him with it. And yet as he was being led away to be executed, James does not cry out in prison for God to, to um, cast down fire upon them and to get him out of that prison. And yet rather like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he did not open up his mouth and he poured out his soul unto death. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? We reunite with John in the very back of our Bibles. His eyes have grown old. And when he speaks, we can, scar we can scarcely recognize him. John is no longer a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's no longer a smoldering furnace. Now he is a fountain of gentle wisdom. And as John writes his letters, he's got this obsession with one theme in particular, over and over again, love, 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 love. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And in the very end of his life, Jesus has performed one of his greatest miracles of all, where the son of thunder is now the apostle of love. And the thunder thundering within him is the thundering love and compassion of Jesus Christ. You see, what James and John learn is that really divine vengeance is something that does not belong to us. We cannot be trusted with it. It was a lesson learned, and it did not come overnight for them. And it was not easy, and it was not pain-free, and that's because transformation hurts. The darkness and ignorance within us is not going to come out without a fight. And yet that is exactly how we learn. And this is the price of growing up. And when transformation begins to ensue within us, it is the greatest ecstasy that we can ever feel. And then lastly, in, in Acts chapter 1, I mean, literally the very last thing Jesus says to us as, as he's ascending into the heavens, he tells these same exact men, as well as all the other apostles, that you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. In chapter 8, Samaria receives the gospel, and there's great rejoicing in that city. And it is not at all outside the realm of possibility that many of these same people rejoicing in Jesus this day were some of the very ones rejecting Jesus in Luke chapter 9. And I mean, that is the beauty of, of life and, and of the gospel and of time. Is that people may not be ready today or tomorrow or three years from now. And yet a time will come when they will be ready, perhaps. So as we close this morning, I just want to ask myself, and I want to ask all of you, 
Are there any ceasefires that we need to call this morning? Are there any fires smoldering in our hearts towards another person or towards a people group? Is there any unresolved rage that we still haven't allowed the grace of God to extinguish? In 2018, there was a mass shooting in a Pittsburgh synagogue. Eleven people were shot to death, some of whom were Holocaust survivors. And the gunman had been shot and wounded, and he was rushed to a nearby hospital. And it just so happened that he fell under the surgical blade of a Jewish doctor who just happened to worship in that synagogue and who was married there, who raised his children in that synagogue and who personally knew and loved people who he just shot to death. And the terrorist was spewing anti-Semitic slurs as the doctor operated on him. And I mean, this was a golden opportunity to exact revenge. I mean, he's got the knife in his hand and he knows ways to use it. And yet that, that was not at all what was in this man's heart. Dr. Jeffrey Cohen was his name and, and he said that it wasn't easy. There were lots of mixed emotions with it. But our job is not to judge. Our job is to help. And that's what he did. And so, my brothers and sisters, God doesn't need any more sons and daughters of thunder. At least not the kind of thunder James and John had in mind in Samaria. He needs sons and daughters of light. Sons and daughters of God. And sons and daughters of good news of great joy. As we close, let us go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we have yet again been reminded that when we are slaves to us versus them, everybody's wrong and everybody loses. And yet when we listen to your grace within us, suddenly that transcends and transforms and transfigures our souls. And now us versus them, it's eradicated within us. And now we are saying with you, there is no more them. There's only us. And we go on our way rejoicing together with our them. 